Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 15 through 23. Uh, But I'm going to begin reading for us in verse 3 uh, and read through to the end of the chapter so that we have a better sense of the context and uh, then we'll focus on verses 15 through 23. Uh, This is our last week in this series in Ephesians chapter 1. And then, uh, as has been mentioned, uh, Dr. Peter Law will be with us uh, next Sunday. I encourage you to be here for that. Um, He's a great brother and uh, president of a mission agency and doing a lot of great work around the world. And so I encourage you to be here uh, next week to hear him uh, share the word with us. Uh, But this morning we're in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 3 and read to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we do ask that by your grace and mercy you would settle our minds and our hearts upon your word. Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would enable us to divide Your Word correctly, Lord, to understand it faithfully, accurately. And Lord, we pray that by the power of Your Word, You would 
Help us to know You more fully, more deeply, and that we would truly worship You, both in song and prayer, but also, Lord, in life, that our lives would be changed and transformed for Your great name's sake. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, we uh, spent several weeks working through Ephesians chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 14. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul begins by declaring, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then as we just read, we see that Paul goes on to recount many of those spiritual blessings. And as he does so, he gets carried away. He begins to rejoice in the great truths of election, predestination, redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the final consummation of all things, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And as Paul is doing this in verses 3 through 14, essentially Paul is modeling for us what it looks like to rejoice in the gospel, to enjoy the good news of God's great salvation and love in Christ. Now as we transition from verses 3 to 14, going into verses 15 through 23, we see here that Paul teaches us that knowing these great gospel doctrines is not enough, but rather we must pray them deep down into our hearts. In verses 3 through 14, we see that Paul is enjoying the gospel. But there's kind of the question remains, what about the church in Ephesus? What about those Christians that he is writing to? How will these Christian doctrines not just be facts that they know, but rather be truths that they delight in. How will, we could say it this way, how will gospel doctrine become God-exalting doxology? Do you know what I mean by doxology? Doxology simply means the worship and the praise of God. So I remember growing up in church, and the church that I grew up in, Uh, Every Sunday we would take the offering, and when we took the offering, we would sing a hymn that was entitled, The Doxology. So basically the deacons would get their uh, the offering plates and they would go around and collect the offering and then the deacons would meet in the back and they'd bring the offering plates up to the front and there was a table in front of the pulpit and they'd place the offering plates there and then the whole congregation would stand up and we would all sing this hymn that is entitled The Doxology. Now, some of you may have experienced that in your own church growing up. And you know the hymn, right? Many of you do. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host, if you're doing the King James Version. Or praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now, that was known as the doxology. It's a song of praise or a song of worship to God. And most churches don't receive the offering in that way anymore. Not that it was wrong to do so. But some felt that singing the doxology the same way, at the same time in the service, every Sunday, that it resulted in the practice becoming maybe mechanistic or impersonal or lifeless. You see, the doctrine being sung was excellent, but the hearts of those who were singing maybe weren't in it. It was good theology, but maybe a half-hearted 
response. Now, I'm not here this morning to argue whether we should sing the doxology more or not. Personally, I like the doxology. Rather, I'm concerned about the larger issue, the larger concern. How is it in our Christian lives that we can prevent that from happening? How do we prevent our hearts from growing cold to great gospel truth? Or we could state it this way. How do we kindle the flame of zeal in our hearts so that our response to the truth of God's great salvation is one of warmth and life and vitality? How does doctrine, gospel doctrine, become God-exalting doxology? And the Apostle Paul reveals the answer to it for us in our passage this morning. The answer is prayer. We must ask, like Paul does here. What we see in Ephesians chapter 1 is that Paul begins this letter to the Ephesians by elaborating on all these great gospel truths. And then, in our text this morning, he prays that those great gospel truths would move from the Ephesians' minds down deep into their hearts and then be lived out in their lives. And I want to suggest this morning that actually much of my prayer life and much of your prayer life should be filled with prayers like this. Prayers for yourself, prayers for others, prayers for our church here. Remember, Paul is praying this prayer for the church in Ephesus. Prayers like, oh God, would you send your spirit to apply the glorious good news of your Son to our hearts and lives so that we are filled with strength and with joy and with hope in you. That's what Paul is doing in our text this morning. And so I want us to take some time this morning, consider this prayer that Paul prays on behalf of the church in Ephesus so that we might understand what he's praying and then so that we might pray prayers like this. So we'll consider the prayer in two parts, a prayer of thanks, and then secondly, a prayer for knowledge. And we would consider the prayer for knowledge, there'll be three parts there, a prayer to know our calling, a prayer to know our inheritance, and a prayer to know His power. So if you're taking notes, I'll go back through that again. Don't get anxious, okay? First of all, a prayer of thanks. Look there in verses 15 through 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So, you see here that Paul begins by giving thanks for the Christians in Ephesus, and in particular, he is thankful for two things. You see it there in the passage. He is thankful for, one, their faith in the Lord Jesus, and then he is thankful, too, for their love toward all the saints. So he's thankful for their faith. And here Paul is speaking about their saving faith. 
That they had come to a point in which they had trusted in the Lord Jesus, that He died for their sins and that He was raised from the dead to give them eternal life. They had trusted in the Lord Jesus, and as a result, they had been saved. They had experienced God's salvation and grace. And so Paul thanks God for their faith in the Lord Jesus. But then also Paul thanks the Lord for their love, for their love for one another. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul summarizes the whole Christian life in this way. Faith working through love. That's what the Christian life is. Faith working through love. We believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we follow Him by loving one another. And so Paul looks at the church in Ephesus and he thanks God because they are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and they are loving one another. And in many ways, this is the two distinguishing marks of every true Christian. Faith in Christ and love for others. Now listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, we should pray for one another like this. We should thank God for one another like this. We should go to God in prayer with gratitude in our hearts for each other. One of the ways that we can do this is uh, we have a membership directory here at Crawford Avenue, and I would encourage each of you to get one. And when you get a membership directory, you can just work through it. You know, pray for one or two people each day. Or pray for a page or two in the membership directory each day. But work through and pray for the other members of our church. And as you do so, thank God for each person for whom you pray. When we pray for another brother or sister in Christ, we should think to ourselves, what evidence of God's grace do I see in this individual's life? And as we think about that, we think about that person, then we should thank God for the evidence of God's grace in their life. Maybe it's faith, maybe it's love, maybe it's hospitality, maybe it's kindness, maybe it's humility. God, I thank you for your work in their life in this way. And then let me encourage you with this. Don't stop there. Notice, that's what's happening here in our passage. Paul prays and he thanks God for the church in Ephesus, but then he shares it with them, right? He tells them about it, and we should do the same. So when Paul is alone, we might think about he's reading the Scriptures and he's praying on his own, or maybe he's on his way to the market, or maybe he's spending time with his fellow missionary companions. At various times, he's thanking God for the church in Ephesus, but then he doesn't stop there. He then goes on to write a letter to the church in Ephesus to tell them of the ways that he is thankful for them. Now, what might that look like in our own lives? Well, it could look like us writing a note or an email or sending a text or telling someone face-to-face. We can still do that, right? In social media age, we can still talk to people face-to-face, tell them directly, right? I am thankful for you. I praise God for you. I'm thankful for the ways that I see you faithfully walking with the Lord. And I want you to know what an encouragement you are to me spiritually. 
And let me just say that as your pastor, I see this happening in our church body, and I praise God for it. I praise God for you and for your love for one another and the way you encourage one another and express gratitude for each other. And I want to encourage us to keep going. Let us double down on a culture of loving gratitude and encouragement. Paul, as he prays for the church in Ephesus, gives God thanks for His grace in their lives. Secondly, a prayer for knowledge. A prayer for knowledge. And this is where Paul spends most of his time. Look there in verse 17. We'll start in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there's a lot there, but notice initially the goal of Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. The goal of Paul's prayer for them, if you just boil it down, is that they would know God. You see it there in verse 17. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, here it is, in the knowledge of Him. So that's what Paul is after. That's what Paul is praying for, that they would know God. And of course, in one sense, they already know God, right? I mean, this is the reason why in verses 15 and 16, he was thanking God for their faith in the Lord Jesus, for their love for one another. But Paul's desire here is that their knowledge of God would grow wider and it would grow deeper. Uh, For college, I uh, attended Columbia International University. It's a Bible college located in Columbia, South Carolina. And the motto of the school is to know Him and to make Him known. To know Him and to make Him known. And in many ways, that is a good summary of the Christian life, isn't it? To know God and then to help others know God. And that's what Paul wants for the church in Ephesus. Now, of course here, as Paul is saying, I I, I want you to know God, it's more than just intellectual knowledge. So, We can think of examples in Scripture where people just had an intellectual knowledge of who God is. In fact, of course, the Scriptures teach us that the demons have this knowledge. James speaks of this. But then it's illustrated, actually, in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 1, there's this occasion where the Lord Jesus comes upon a man who has an unclean spirit, and the man begins to cry out, and the unclean spirit is speaking through him. And he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So you see, the unclean spirit knows who Jesus is in one sense. He knows that He is the Holy One of God. 
but he doesn't trust in the Lord Jesus. He doesn't worship the Lord Jesus. Or in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, they knew that God existed, but they didn't give thanks to Him. They didn't honor Him. They didn't worship Him. And so Paul here is not just speaking of an intellectual or cognitive knowledge of who God is. Rather, he's speaking of a personal, experiential knowledge of God that results in faith and love and worship. It's like the knowledge that a father has of his children. The knowledge that a husband has of his wife. It is a knowledge that involves love and trust and intimacy. And of course, this knowledge involves our minds, but it also involves so much more. It involves our hearts and our affections, our wants and our desires. So it's not just all about intellect. It's not just how much information can I pile up in my mind about who God is. Yes, God works through our minds, but it's so much more than that. Listen to the testimony of Charles Spurgeon. He was a great English Baptist preacher in the 19th century in London. And he shares that he learned most of his theology, not from world-renowned biblical scholars, but from an uneducated cook who took interest in him as a boy and used to speak to him about the Bible and the glory and the wonder of the gospel. He writes, quote, The first lessons I ever had in theology were from an old cook. She was a good old soul and used to read the gospel standard. Many times we have gone over the covenant of grace together and talked of the personal election of the saints, their union to Christ, their final perseverance, and what vital godliness meant. And I do believe that I learned more from her than I could have learned from any six doctors of divinity of the sort we have nowadays. There are some Christian people who taste and see and enjoy religion in their souls and who get at a deeper knowledge of it than books can ever give them, though they should search all their days. The cook at Newmarket was a godly, experienced woman from whom I learned far more than I did from the ministry of the chapel we attended, end of quote. And my friends, that is what Paul wants for the church in Ephesus. That is what Paul wants for us. He wants us to get a deeper knowledge of God in the gospel, as Spurgeon says, than books could ever give us, though we should search all our days. And books are good. God uses books. But it's so much more than books, right? That we would possess a knowledge that leads to worship and praise and wonder and glory and trust and faith and obedience. Now, how does that happen? Well, Paul tells us in our text that it happens by the Spirit and through the eyes of our heart. Look there in verse 17 and 18. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So the Spirit, so it's by the Spirit and through the eyes of our heart. Now the Spirit here that is spoken of, the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation, is the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that Paul said is granted to us at conversion and seals us for the day of redemption. We saw that in verse 13 and 14. Look back in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So we have been given the Spirit. We've been sealed with the Spirit as Christians for the day of redemption. And this is part of the Holy Spirit's ongoing ministry in our lives. That He would give us wisdom, that He would give us insight as He reveals to us more and more of the knowledge of who God is. And we should earnestly and consistently ask that the Father would give this gift to us. The gift of the Spirit. The gift of the work of the Spirit in our hearts so that we might know Him more fully. We should pray this for ourselves individually. We should pray this for us as a church, as a whole. Oh God, would you give us your spirit that we might know you. This is in fact how the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. In Luke chapter 11 verse 13, Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so what is Paul doing in our text? He's asking, Lord, would You give Your Holy Spirit? Would You pour out Your Spirit on the church in Ephesus so that they might know You? And how does this happen? It happens by the Spirit. And then notice this, it happens through the eyes of our hearts. So, we see there in verse 17 that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. Here it is, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, that is a strange image, isn't it? The eyes of your heart. Children, if you're taking sermon notes this morning, you can draw that where you're taking sermon notes. A heart has eyes in it. Okay. Now, what's the idea here? It's one of the ways that the Bible makes a distinction between being able to see things physically and being able to see and perceive things spiritually. And there is a dramatic difference. You see, the problem is that we are born, even though we may have 2020 eyesight physically, we are born with eyes in our hearts that are blind to the things of God and who He is. The eyes of our hearts are blind to spiritual reality for what it truly is because our hearts are dark. This is the way the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 4. So just a few chapters later, in Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 18, Paul says it this way. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So what Paul is saying there is when it comes to God and seeing Him for who He is and responding to Him appropriately, given who He is, their minds don't work right. And the reason their minds don't work right is because their hearts are dark and hard. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 13, verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. So those who Jesus was teaching, physically they could see Him, right? They could tell you what He looked like. They could describe how He was dressed. They might even be able to relate to you some of His mannerisms. But they could not see Him for who He truly was and believe in Him and trust Him and worship Him. They could hear Him. So that when he taught, they knew the words of Jesus. If, if they had been there and Jesus was teaching and then they walked away and two or three hours later somebody asked you, well, what did Jesus say? They could regurgitate to you what Jesus said and they could follow the logic of what Jesus was saying and present you with the arguments that he was making. But they could not perceive it for what it was, the Word of God, eternal truth, the bread of life. This is why the psalmist prays in Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes, that I might behold, that I might see wondrous things out of your law. And we know what the psalmist means, right? The psalmist can see the words on the page. He's not praying for better eyesight. He's not praying for better reading glasses. He's praying that the Lord spiritually would enable him to perceive the glory and the wonder of who God is revealed in Holy Scripture. And my friends, this is the miracle that the Spirit does in our hearts. The Spirit works in our hearts in such a way that the eyes of our hearts are able to perceive what is truly there and to respond in faith. The Spirit performs this work at conversion, and then He graciously continues to do this work in our hearts as we look to Christ in faith and follow Him. So listen to how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, for God, now what we've been talking about, all of it is in this one verse, okay? For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here's what Paul is saying. Our hearts are dark. We can't see. So if you imagine you're, you're blind and you're sitting in a dark room and you can't see anything, that's the condition of our hearts. 
We're blind and we're sitting in a pitch black dark room in terms of our ability to perceive God for who He truly is and to respond to Him appropriately. And God, by His Spirit, speaks into the darkness of our hearts like He spoke into the abyss of darkness before time began. And He says, let there be light. And there is light. And the eyes of our hearts can see and perceive God for who He is. Can see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and respond to Him in faith. And now what we once thought was foolishness, we perceive as glory. And what once was irrelevant to us and dull and boring is now real. And it's thrilling. This is the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. This is how the Spirit enables us to see God for who He is and to trust Him and love Him and follow Him. And then Paul goes on to say, as he's speaking of this knowledge of God, that we know God by knowing three things in particular. By knowing His calling, by knowing His inheritance, and by knowing His power. And let's just look at each one of these briefly. So notice in verse 18, there's this prayer for knowledge He goes on to pray specifically that we would know His calling. Look there in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. Now, as we've already learned in Ephesians chapter 1, God's calling finds its origin in God's choice before the foundation of the world. So back in verse 3, we read, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So having chose us, He now calls us to be His own. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. So there you see in Jesus' statement that there are seems to be two different types of call. There is a general call. Many are called. The gospel goes out to all and is to be proclaimed to all. But few are chosen. That's what's known as the effectual call. Some are called in such a way that their obedient response is ensured. And so, as Christians, yes, we call on God, but we call on Him because He first called on us. And He has purpose to save us. And the hope of this calling is revealed. So that's what Paul's talking about here. The hope of His call. The hope of this call is revealed in Romans chapter 8 verse 30. So Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called. So there you see the connection that we're talking about. He purposed to save us and then He called us. Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, do you see the inevitability and the certainty of it all? Those whom He predestined, He calls. And those He calls, He justifies. And those He justifies, He glorifies. So all those whom God calls in this way, in an effectual way, 
He will glorify. In other words, He will see it through until they are finally redeemed and in His presence forever. And it's certain, it's sure, because God has purposed it to be so. This is the hope of the calling that we have as Christians. And what assurance this should bring us as Christians. This is the purpose. This is why, this is why the, the Apostle Paul is praying that, that God would take this truth and put it deep in the Ephesians' hearts because he wants them to be filled with hope. He wants them to be filled with assurance. To know that God has called me and therefore He will keep me and He will bring me to glory because nothing can thwart His purposes and His plans. This is part of what it means to know God. To know that He has sealed me with His Holy Spirit. To know that He has promised that no one can pluck me out of His hand. Part of what it means to know God is to know that God Himself wants me to rest secure in the purpose of His grace and of His love and in His salvation. So Paul prays that they would know they would know His calling. But then notice also he prays a prayer to know His inheritance. So a prayer to know His inheritance. So look there again in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. And here it is. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, what are the riches of His inheritance in the saints? Well, before we speak of those riches, let me just say this. In the book of Ephesians, this theme of God being rich is prevalent. It's actually all over the place. So, in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul speaks of the riches of God's grace. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says that God is rich in mercy. In chapter 2, verse 7, Paul speaks of the immeasurable riches of God's grace. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, he speaks of the riches of His glory. In other words, Paul wants us to know that God is extravagantly rich. And here in our text that we're looking at this morning, he speaks of the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, what are some of those riches? Well, there's some of the things that Paul has already mentioned in chapter 1, right? They're the riches of election and predestination and redemption and the forgiveness of sins and the ultimate consummation of all things in Christ and the gift and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying is that in the gospel, we are rich. We have been granted a rich inheritance. And in many ways, we've already received this inheritance, right? It is ours presently. We possess it. But there is more to come. There is a future possession of the full, eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ. And this should give us a forward-thinking, eternal perspective in life. So the Christian pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards, he used to pray. This, this is so amazing. He used to pray, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. That's intense. Lord, stamp eternity 
on my eyeballs. May I see all things through the eternal inheritance that awaits me. With that in mind, as a young man, Jonathan Edwards wrote a number of resolutions related to his own spiritual walk with Christ. And so, resolution 22, he writes that he is resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the world to come as I possibly can. To accomplish this, I will use all the strength, power, vigor, and vehemence, even violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of, end of quote. What he's saying, I, I, I have this eternal inheritance that awaits me, right? And so I want to orchestrate my life in every way I can imagine to live for that day and for that inheritance, for that eternal reward. Several weeks ago, Ryan Fullerton, a pastor at a church in Louisville, Kentucky, he preached here at Crawford Avenue, and he made the point that we oftentimes try to overcome worldly temptations and sorrows with earthly joys, and it won't work. That the only the hope of heaven will sustain us through certain sorrows in this life. And listen, my friends, only the hope of heaven will break the power of certain sins in our lives. And so the Apostle Paul prays that the church in Ephesus would know more fully the riches of God's great inheritance that He has purchased for them in Christ. And so part of what it means to know God is to know that this eternal inheritance awaits us. That it's more precious than the temporary pleasures of this life. And that the trials and the temptations and the sorrows and the difficulties that we experience now don't even compare to what God has in store for us. So he prays a prayer to know God's calling. He prays a prayer that they would know God's inheritance. And then he prays a prayer that they would know God's power. That they would know His power. Now, this actually deserves a sermon all in of, of itself. I promise you I'm not going to do that this morning. But, verse 19, he prays that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, and not only in this age but also in the age to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things in the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, one commentator has pointed out that what the Apostle Paul does here is he speaks of the power that God has invested in us, that he stacks power and strength words on top of each other, one on top of another, another on another, to convey the greatness of Jesus' resurrection power in those who believe. So look there in verse 19. The immeasurable greatness of his power. And then he goes on to say, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ. So Paul is speaking of this tremendous power, resurrection power of Christ, 
that is now in us, and Paul desires for us to experience that divine spiritual power. And this power has been demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus and all that is included in his resurrection. So this is where Paul kind of goes on and on speaking about the resurrection, the exaltation, the glory of Christ. He speaks of him being raised from the dead, being seated at the right hand of the Father, all things being subjected to his rule and authority, him being declared as head over the church. Paul is building this up. He's putting layer on top of layer to speak of the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus. So so we could say that the, the cross was the greatest demonstration of God's love. And we can say that the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ was the greatest display of God's power. And this is part of what it means to be a Christian, to have experienced that power, and for the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead to live and dwell within us. Listen to what James Boyce says. Quote, Christianity is knowledge, yes, but it is also power. Power from beginning to end. Without the power of God, not one individual would ever become a Christian. The salvation of the soul is a resurrection. The recovery of a person from the dead Without God's power, not one individual would ever triumph over sin, live a godly life, or come at last to the reward God has for all His own in heaven. End of quote. In fact, Paul goes on to speak of this extensively in chapter 2 when he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? But God made us alive in Christ. By grace you've been saved. Paul presents Christian conversion as nothing less than a spiritual resurrection from the dead. And that is the power of Christ in us. And then that power, the power of the resurrected Christ, continues to change us and transform us and keep us until the day of redemption. And so Paul wants the church in Ephesus to know something of that power, to experience it, and to believe and trust That Christ in them is greater than whatever is in the world. That Christ in them will keep them and preserve them. That Christ in them will seal them for the day of redemption and finally glorify them so that they are with God forever and eternity. This is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. It's a prayer of thanks. It's a prayer for knowledge. Knowledge to know God's calling Knowledge to know His inheritance. Knowledge to know His power. We see here from this text, and really as we read the letter of Ephesians as a whole, that prayer was an essential part of Paul's Christian life and also an essential part of his pastoral ministry. This is not the only prayer that's recorded in Ephesians. It's a short letter. It's only six chapters. But if you go over to chapter 3, you see that Paul there records another prayer. He says in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He's getting on his knees to pray. 
And he's praying for the church in Ephesus. And what does he pray? Verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So Paul is praying in chapter 1 that they would know God, that they would know His calling, that they would know His inheritance, that they would know His power. In chapter 3, he's praying that they would know His great love for them in Christ. Then in chapter 6, he tells them the famous passage of the spiritual armor of God, right? Put on the armor of God, the whole armor, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then in verses 18 through 20, he says to pray at all times in the Spirit. So you put on the armor, but the armor's not enough. Once you have the armor off, you need to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, making supplication for all the saints. That's what Paul's doing, right? He's praying for the churches, Praying for the church in Ephesus. Praying for other churches. We should pray for our church. Making supplication for all the saints. And also pray for me, Paul says, that words may be given me in the opening of my mouth that I may boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Prayer was such an essential part of the Apostle Paul's life and his pastoral ministry. And it should be an essential part of our lives and of our ministries. What might God do if we also were characterized by such prayers? If we prayed prayed prayers like this one that we've considered this morning, God, would you pour out your Spirit upon us that we might see you and know you for who you are, that we might be filled with the knowledge of the hope of the call that you have given us in Christ, that we might sense and know something more of the riches of the great inheritance that you have given us in Jesus, that we might know the power of the resurrected Christ in us so that we can experience victory over sin and endure trials and take the gospel to the ends of the earth and not give up and not faint, but see it through to the end. God, would you do that? What might our own lives look like a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now? What might our church look like? By God's grace, may we pray such prayers. For as Paul says in this letter, he is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word, and Lord, we confess that we are such a weak and broken people in so many ways, and yet in these jars of clay, You have entrusted an infinite and immeasurably valuable treasure, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the Lord Jesus Himself. And so, Father, help us in all our weakness and brokenness to know the glory of what You have given us in Christ and in the gospel. And we pray that as a result, we would respond in faith and love, that we would be strengthened to walk in obedience, and, Lord, that we would worship You, that we would glorify Your name. So take Your Word now, Lord, and we pray that You would apply it to our hearts. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen.